Hello, hello, y'all. Hey, it's me, Robin. And before we get into today's episode, I'm here to let you know that the club is open right now for new members. I'm going to take a couple minutes to fill you in on all that the club is offering right now. So if you know for sure you're not interested in joining the club, you're just going to want to hit the forward button a few times until you hear that baffling behavior show jingle. Okay, so the club is a virtual community for families of kids with vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. Many families in the club are parenting kids with a history of complex trauma, but definitely not all. Some are parenting kids with vulnerabilities that emerge from their neurotype or their sensory system or their giftedness or their neuroimmune disorder. And of course, some have no idea why their child's nervous system is so vulnerable. The primary purpose of the club and why I've created it the way that I have is connection and co-regulation. Because when I reflect back on my time as a therapist, it wasn't the skills and strategies and tools and techniques I taught parents that mattered the most. What mattered most was how connection and co-regulation strengthened their owl brain so that they could stay more regulated in the face of the chaos in their home. Then they could, number one, actually use the tools, and number two, start to feel a little bit better even before the tools started to work. The club can be accessed online both through your browser on your computer and through an app. And it's open, of course, 24-7. There's a very active forum, a huge video library, and multiple live events every month. Sometimes I teach a masterclass on a specific topic. Sometimes we come together for group coaching or just to ask questions and pick, pick my brain. We have two sessions every month called Connect and Co-Regulates, and those are designed to offer exactly that. There's no teaching, no coaching, just a place for you to be seen and heard by people who get it. Currently, we are also offering once a month bonus sessions for siblings of dysregulated kids. The club is intended to be kind of like a buffet. There is a ton in it, not because you're supposed to do everything in the club. You take what you need when you need it and come back when you're ready for more. If you could use a little extra support, consider joining us. You can read all about all the details over at robingobel.com slash the club. I'll put a link in the show notes And we're open today until the end of the day, Friday, May 3rd. All right, y'all, here's that episode you're waiting for. On May 10th and 11th, I taught a free masterclass online called What Behavior Really Is and How to Change It. Maybe you were there, but maybe you weren't. To be honest, I don't love watching videos. I would much rather put in my earbuds and listen to an audio only, even if it meant missing some slides or important visuals. So with that in mind, I'm releasing the audio from that masterclass here as a bonus podcast episode. After you finish the episode, you can head over to robingobel.com slash masterclass if you'd like to watch the video too. There may be a few ideas in the masterclass that are easier to express with the slides that are in the video. 
I hope you enjoy. I can't be completely certain, of course, why you have decided you wanted to join me this evening for today's masterclass, but I can make a guess based on the hundreds and even thousands of families that I've worked with both in my therapy office, as well as all the families, parents, professionals, educators I've had the opportunity to meet as I've led trainings and workshops for the last 15 years. So my guess is, you know a kid, maybe in your family or in your classroom or in your therapy practice, whose behaviors are feeling very baffling, confusing, and overwhelming that you are feeling just done playing behavior whack-a-mole, right? Maybe like every once in a while, you're able to address the behaviors with some pretty typical like behavior modification techniques. But more often than not, those behaviors just keep popping up somewhere else, right? And it's all just feeling like this big, huge guessing game and lots of reacting to problems after they've already emerged. Does this sound familiar, like what's happening in your family sometimes or even a lot of the time? And then, of course, this is even bigger, right? This like behavior whack-a-mole scenario just gets exacerbated if you're parenting a child who has been impacted by trauma, toxic stress, loss, attachment trauma, adoption. This just adds a whole new layer of complexity to these baffling, confusing, overwhelming behaviors. So what I do know for certain is that it's not that you aren't doing this whole parenting thing right. Like that isn't what the problem is. The problem is that you haven't been given information that's up to date with what we know now in 2021 about the brain and the relation, the the brain and our relationships, the relational brain and how the brain impacts behaviors. So we're still stuck in using things like rewards and consequences and punishments, time in, time out. I mean, I know you name it, you've tried it. And these strategies aren't working, not because you're doing something wrong, but because they aren't addressing what the real problem is. So today in tonight's masterclass, that's what we're going to be looking at, what behavior really is. I'm Robin Goebel, and if you missed some of those introductory videos at the beginning of the webinar, let me tell you that I am a mental health specialist, psychotherapist, although I'm not currently doing therapy, with expertise in complex trauma, relationships, attachment, specifically in kids. I was born and raised in Michigander, and then I lived my entire adult life in Texas, and now I'm back in Michigan, outside Grand Rapids in West Michigan. In addition, <clears throat> excuse me, 
In addition to my husband and our teenage son, our family also includes our precious Labradoodle. We have eight hens, a rooster, and about 30,000 bees, give or take just a couple, according to my husband. I really don't know. The bees are all named Dave Grohl, except for the queens. We call them Freddie. When I lived in Austin, I was the founder of the Central Texas Attachment and Trauma Trauma Center and loved working in this little blue house with some of my absolute closest friends. Inside the little blue house, I was an outpatient therapist focused pretty exclusively on working with kids who had experienced trauma and their families. The vast majority of the kids that I worked with were in adopted families. In 2019, my family and I decided that we were ready for a big new adventure. I closed my therapy practice and we relocated from Austin, Texas to outside Grand Rapids, Michigan. I took a clinical sabbatical, meaning I stopped seeing clients, but I kept teaching and speaking at conferences, training, connecting with other parents and professionals all over the world. I also teach the science of interpersonal neurobiology in a certificate program on the foundations of interpersonal neurobiology that's offered at Portland Community College. And this is all done virtually. I get to teach that here from Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is pretty cool. But then, of course, that's what I'm doing exclusively now, right? Teaching virtually. On March 13th, the whole world changed. In fact, I was flying home from teaching a live in-person workshop in Richmond, Virginia, and quickly trying to figure out like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I canceled 18 trips and my husband and I built a little video studio in our basement so that I could keep doing the work that I was doing, teaching and training and connecting with parents and professionals really all over the world, right? So now I'm doing this exclusively here in my basement, coming to you live across the internet. And I also have a ton of resources resources over on my website that are specifically designed to support kids and families, including a blog with well over 50 articles. I have a podcast that I just launched in December. And I think today I checked and we were at like 33,000 downloads. So that's pretty exciting to think about all the families all over the world that are getting this information. I have several free resources over on my website. So when the masterclass is done, I want you to head over to my website, just poke around and see what else there is. In January, I launched what we're affectionately calling the club, which is this virtual community for parents and also for professionals of kids impacted by trauma, where we're coming together in this virtual space for what I'm calling some connections, some co-regulation, and of course, a little bit of education. And then the other resource that I have available for you is a digital course. So it's a completely self-paced online, do all on your own time, really deep dive digital course into parenting kids after trauma and really deeply exploring some of the concepts I'm going to outline for you today on regulation, connection, and felt safety. So again, I'm going to make sure that you get links to all of these free resources. So after the masterclass is over today, if you're like, oh yeah, I want to learn more, I have so much more for you to go and get like instantly at your fingertips. 
So it's been my 15 years of clinical practice combined with my in-depth studies of both the relational neurosciences and attachment theory, as well as teaching thousands of parents and professionals how to help kids with significant behavioral challenges, most with histories of toxic stress, that has completely shifted my understanding of what behavior really is. This paradigm shift has forced me away from staying focused on behaviors, on what you can see, which leaves you stuck in that big game of behavior whack-a-mole, right? With consequences and time out, time ins, again, like you name it, I know you've tried it. Before we go into exactly what this paradigm shift is, let's first look at why. Like, why are we taking the time? Because it's, it does take time and it takes energy. And honestly, it takes a lot of guts to really consider making a huge paradigm shift into the way that we see behaviors and ultimately the way that we see people. So why? Why are we going to invest time and energy in that? Well, the first reason is because of the emerging field of the relational neurosciences, that this fast-growing field is teaching us every day more and more and more and more about the brain, the body, the mind, and the nervous system, and their impact on behaviors. And we just know so much more than we did 10, 15, 20 years ago when I was in graduate school about what the origins of behavior are. And then of course, what do we do to change or support those behaviors? So the relational neurosciences is a field that includes interpersonal neurobiology, affect regulation theory, uh, the polyvagal theory, Dr. Bruce Perry's neurosequential model of therapeutics, right? That's just a small example of some of the theories that make up this emerging field of the relational neurosciences. And I've been studying this, the neurobiology then of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human for well over 10 years. And then in 2019, I was given the great honor being invited to teach the science of interpersonal neurobiology in the certificate program that's offered at Portland Community College. This paradigm shift then allows us to finally solve the real problem, which really isn't the behavior. It's what's causing the behavior. If we don't get to the root cause, right, we'll have a much harder time changing behavior and then an even harder time getting any kind of behavior change that comes, a harder time getting that to stick, right? Worse, though, is that we run the risk of using behavior management techniques that really aren't respectful and end up teaching our kids things like that they have no voice or they have no power or that they can't trust adults. The third reason then for this big paradigm shift is that the paradigm shift alone actually is a strategy. It's an intervention. Sure, the paradigm shift is going to inform strategies and interventions for sure, but changing the way we see people is an intervention. And honestly, when it comes right down to it, it's actually the most important one. We can turn back to the relational neurosciences to understand why this is true, specifically 
mirror neurons, the resonance circuitry, and even memory science. We come to know who we are through the eyes of the other. So if I want my child to show me the precious, amazing human that he is, I have to first show him through my eyes that I already know he is that person. And then the fourth reason for making this huge paradigm shift is because it finally solves the real problem, then it makes intuitive sense to parents and adults when they're regulated themselves, of course. And since it makes sense and it works, even though sometimes we definitely have to be redefining, like, what does it mean to quote unquote work? It leads to clarity and confidence and increased connection in our relationship with this child. I wanted to pause the episode real quick and read you this testimonial from one club member. This person writes in, the club has been life-changing for me. For me, feeling alone in the stress and the overwhelm of parenting a child with complex trauma has been traumatic. Here in the club, we are finding healing for ourselves by feeling seen and heard and validated, even though we may have come here for our children's healing. Oh, y'all, that is exactly what I'm trying to do in the club, to create a space that's for you that also brings healing to your kids. So the club's open for new members until April 28th. We'd love to have you. RobinGobel.com slash the club. All right, let's get back to the episode. This paradigm shift is hinged on the truth that the brain is behind everything we do, everything, right? Including behaviors. So in a way, this is maybe feeling like, well, yeah, of course, like that's obvious, you know, nothing happens without the brain. And that definitely seems really clear when we're thinking about things like math facts or remembering how to do something or even more like our autonomic functions, like breathing and heart rate and respiration. Yes, of course, of course, our brain is behind all of those things. But it is easy to lose sight, I think, especially when we're faced with like really challenging behaviors, behaviors that feel personal, behaviors that we end up labeling things like manipulation or control or opposition, right? Because those behaviors can feel so personal, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the brain is behind everything, that we can use behaviors as clues to give us information about what's really going on inside, right? When we understand what behavior really is, and again, that it's just what we see on the outside that gives us information about what's happening on the inside, it becomes so much easier to stay anchored in the truth that regulated connected kids who feel safe and of course know what to do behave well this is my mantra and if you've 
followed me on social media at all prior to tonight, you've probably seen me, you know, make a quote out of this or heard me say this that regulated, connected kids who feel safe do well. So we're going to look at each of these three concepts, regulation, connection, felt safety, one by one, starting with felt safety. So felt safety is a term that was first identified and defined by Dr. Alan Shrew, who is an international leader in attachment science and attachment research. And Dr. Shrew defines felt safety as a subjective experience, meaning what is felt safety for me is not going to be felt safety for somebody else. And I can't look at a situation that somebody else is in and say, well, that's safe because it's subjective because how that person is experiencing the situation and how I'm experiencing it aren't the same. So it's the subjective experience of safety based on information that the brain is taking from three places the environment, the caregiver or the relationship that the child is in, and the child's internal experience, what's happening inside their bodies. Dr. Steve Porges then introduced to us the concept of neuroception, which is the phenomenon that allows us to unconsciously make an assessment of our safety based on information we're getting from these three places, the environment, the caregiver, and our inner world. Dr. Porges, the polyvagal theory, and, and his colleague, Dr. Devdana, have said that neuroception is taking information from inside, outside, and in between. And that's that's the same as what Dr. Shroof is saying. Inside meaning inside our inner world, outside the environment and in between is the relational experience. And when we're talking about kids, I'm typically talking about the relational experience with their caregiver. So that's what felt safety is. Let's look at connection. Connection was also defined to us by Dr. Porges, a medical doctor who says, based on his research, that connection is a biological imperative. We're born with it, we can't lose it, we need it to survive. And Dr. Porges is a medical doctor, so he's looking at the science and physiology and has then made this conclusion, connection is a biological imperative, brought the science really to what those of us in the mental health and the psychotherapy field have kind of intuitively known forever, right? That we need connection to be okay at our core. We are designed and created to be in connection with one another. Our brain literally develops inside connection, that when an infant is born, their brain is primed. They are just ready for neurons to fire up and create all sorts of wonderful, beautiful connections. But that happens inside a connected, co-regulated relationship with an adult, that the infant's brain is ready to bloom, but it needs the connection of a co-regulated adult to truly bloom. So we need connection in order to develop. 
we're always, always, always seeking connection. And when we don't receive it, our brain experiences that as a threat. That is something that would be experienced as neuroceiving danger, right? Looking at the relational space and looking for connection and not finding connection is uh, uh, makes the brain go, oh no, oh no, danger, danger. I need more information here. I think this is dangerous or I know this is very dangerous. It's experienced as a threat to the brain. Regulation then is our third concept that we were talking about here. I said regulated, connected kids who feel safe do well. So what's regulation? What does regulation mean? Simply put, regulation is simply about balance. Today, we're talking about the regulation of energy and arousal in our nervous system, but the word regulation applies to all sorts of things, like the thermostat in my house, you know, helps regulate the temperature uh, in the house, right? But today, regulation is about balance of the energy and arousal in our nervous systems. So our nervous systems have an accelerator and a brake. The energy and arousal of our nervous system has accelerator, go, 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 energy or brake, slow down, slow down, slow down energy, right? When we step on the accelerator of the nervous system, our energy and arousal increases. And when we step on the brake, it decreases. The regulation of our nervous system is actually developed inside the attachment relationship in those earliest days and months and years of a child's life. So you see here in this graphic, there is this just very general representation of the attachment cycle, need, need expressed, need met. And then the child ah, has this experience of relaxing and trusting. And that this experience happens over and over hundreds and thousands and maybe millions of times in that child's first year of life, which lays the foundation for attachment. But we also now understand that this lays the foundation for regulation, right? So if you think about the accelerator of the nervous system, the increase in the energy, that's what's happening, right? When the infant has a need. Right, infants burst in the world ready to tell us that they have a need. Their sympathetic side of their nervous system is ready and raring to go, right? And they cry. And there's energy there, and we can feel that energy in our own bodies. Thank goodness, because feeling that energy in our own bodies like prompts us to do something to, to help and soothe that infant. So then the caregiver comes in and soothes the infant and meets their need, and the brakes then uh, are pressed. Infants, right, they come into the world with this really strong accelerator, no problems there, but the brake side of their nervous system really still needs to be developed, right, that infants need help soothing, right, and so it's inside this attachment relationship that the brake gets exercised, And infants then develop eventually what we call regulation. So the regulation of the nervous system, the balance of the energy and the breaks of the nervous system are developed inside the connected co-regulated relationship that an infant has with an adult, with a caregiver. 
if we pull that circle cycle out, need, need express, need met, right? We pull that circle out, we get this wave, right? And uh, this graphic of nice accelerator break, accelerator break, it goes up and down. And it represents uh, the energy of our nervous system inside our window of tolerance, which is our ability to tolerate stress without freaking out. That's my very scientific definition, the ability to tolerate stress without freaking out, right? So the behaviors that happen in response to, in cooperation with a regulated nervous system could be based on a wide variety of feelings, anger or sadness, all of those feelings and the subsequent behaviors that come with them could be inside our regulated window of tolerance. The key is that that person isn't freaking out. And the reaction for the most part seems to mass match the stressor. So you may have heard that the club is open today for just a few days for new members. And I wanted to share with you what this club member said about her time in the club. This member says, I was way more successful handling a stressful situation than I would have been a year ago. And it is truly a result of the material I've learned through Robin and the club. Oh my gosh, y'all. I love, love, love hearing that. There's no way that we can promise that the stress from your kids is going to change because we're just not in control of anybody else but ourselves. But what we can do is work to change how we respond to those stressors. And that's what we do over in the club. We are open for new members from now until the 28th of April, and we would love to have you. The relational neurosciences then have allowed us to be able to see behaviors through the lens of regulation, connection, and felt safety. I could take every behavior, and some of these are psychiatric diagnoses. I could take every behavior that's listed on this chart and explain them through the lens of regulation, connection, and felt safety. So then in my work as a therapist and with families, I'm working towards that, the regulation, the connection, and the felt safety, right? That I'm not focusing on the behavioral symptoms that are accompanying those diagnoses. I'm focusing on cultivating in this child's nervous system, regulation, connection, and felt safety. Knowing that a regulated, connected child who's feeling safe is doing well. To get a little bit of a clearer picture on how to support our kids with challenging behaviors, it's helpful to understand that the brain has essentially two modes, connection mode or protection mode. So this is about felt safety that we've talked about in that process of neuroception. And it's like an on or an off switch. Either the brain is ex experiencing felt safety and it's in connection mode, or the brain is not experiencing felt safety and it's protection mode. It's an either or thing. 
One more thing about felt safety is that the brain is doing this assessment of safety inside, outside, and in between at a remarkably fast pace, like faster than we really can even kind of wrap our brains around every four times, every second, every quarter of a second, the brain is looking those three places inside, outside, and in between. So we could do the math and think about four times every second, three, ta- three places the brain is looking. So that's like 12 things every second that the brain is taking in data to decide safe or not safe. And this is an either or on or off switch, either safe or not. Now in protection mode brain, that switch has a bit of a, is like a dimmer switch, like the dimmer switch in our kitchen, maybe the level of not safe, the level of protection brain can increase and decrease. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But first, let's look at being in connection mode. When we're in connection mode, when our brain is experiencing felt safety, we're receiving cues of safety from inside, outside, and in between, our social engagement system is engaged. We're open and available for being in connection and relationship, and we're preferencing that. We want to be in connected relationships with one another. Our owl brain is in charge. When I work with kids, I talk about their owl thinking brain. And when our owl brain is in charge, we make thoughtful decisions. We have impulse control. We understand cause and effect. We, you know, like the understanding the consequences of our actions matter. Like we can think ahead as opposed to just like having, you know, responsive behaviors based or Uh, behaviors that are just, you know, a reaction to whatever is happening, right? And when our owl brain is in charge, we can typically make choices that nurture cooperation and connection. Now, remember I talked about the accelerator in the break. So when, when we're in connection mode, when our owl brain is in charge, our accelerator could engage. We could get some you know, energy and arousal going and really step on that accelerator. And that brings us into the nervous system state of playfulness. So playfulness is the owl brain with connection and energy and arousal, the accelerator is going. And then, of course, we can ha- be in the owl brain and have the, the deep, deep, deep brakes pressed, right? And when the, the deep brakes of the nervous system are pressed, the owl brain is able to be in a state of deep rest, yet still connected. So think maybe about uh, like snuggling on the couch and watching a movie or, or reading a book together. Right. So if you're familiar with the polyvagal theory, we would call this that that dorsal vagal branch. Right. So the the there's this deep rest is available, but there's still connection brain. Right. They're still experiencing felt safety. So the owl brain then is the socially engaged brain that's a you know has the capacity for both playfulness and deep rest and is a state of the nervous system that's open and available for connection. When the brain is experiencing cues of danger, we the brain flips into protection mode 
And then protective behaviors emerge. So I call this, when I'm working with kids, a watchdog brain. So now energy and arousal while experiencing these cues of danger is fight-flight behavior. The more fear, the more energy and arousal, the less safety, the less connection, and the less regulation. You can see here there are four stages of the watchdog brain. That's how I, you know, I talked about how protection mode has like a dimmer switch. These are these four levels of arousal based on Dr. Bruce Perry's arousal continuum. So if we look at the first level of arousal, right, there is some danger being experienced or just the possibility of danger. So in the alert level of arousal, the owl brain is still engaged and is still able to kind of get, for, get more information and check things out and be like, huh, is this really dangerous or not? Let me investigate further. And in the alert level of arousal, what we see then are behaviors that Dr. Perry calls vigilance. So this might be a child who feels like really hypervigilant or even hyperactive and their eyes are everywhere and they're taking in everything and they really are having a hard time staying focused on what you want them to be focused on because they're vigilantly assessing for, you know, is this really dangerous or not, right? Then as we move up the arousal continuum, we move into what Dr. Perry calls the alarm level of arousal. And these are behaviors of resistance. So now we start to see behaviors that can be a little bit trickier to navigate. Opposition, right? Maybe crying and just a reluctance to be in any, you know, in cooperation or in connection, right? Because we're in protection mode brain. Behaviors of opposition only emerge from protection mode brain. If the brain is in connection mode, the brain is ready for connection and cooperation, not opposition. Then as we go up to the next level in the arousal continuum, we move into the level of fear. And we find behaviors of defiance, you know, more significant refusal, maybe tantruming. And then as we go up to the next level in the arousal continuum and into the terror state, we see behaviors of aggression, verbal or physical aggression. So again, I just, I want to point out verbal and physical aggression are behaviors that emerge from the protection mode brain that is experiencing a terror level of arousal. That might be confusing to us. We might be like, I don't understand why that's the, what I'm experiencing doesn't, you know, seem to be a terror level of arousal. But what we can know is that the child's neuroception, the way they're experiencing the subjective experience of safety has their brain in the terror level of arousal. That's the only reason, you know, aggressive behaviors would emerge. So what we want to stay focused on is how do I bring increased regulation? How do I increase connection? How do I increase felt safety? And then those behaviors will decrease down the arousal continuum and eventually move back into connection brain where we don't see opposition, defiance, or aggression.
Now, there's another pathway in protection brain, and you might have a child where this describes your child's behaviors, not watchdog brain behaviors of opposition, defiance, of aggression, but behaviors that I call the possum brain, where there's a significant decrease in energy that that emergency break is really pushed. Right. And so, again, if you're familiar with a polyvagal theory, this is that dorsal vagal pathway while neuroceiving danger. Remember, we're still talking about protection mode brain. Protection mode brain is about lacking cues of safety from inside, outside or in between. So just like the watchdog side in the fight flight pathway, the possum side also has these four levels to the arousal continuum, beginning with alert, in which we're going to often see behaviors of avoidance, Um, staying away from potential stressors or triggers, um, just, you know, kind of keeping away and keeping to themselves and really avoiding stress or potential triggers. We move into the alarm level. And this behavior is actually can feel really confusing because the behaviors that emerge from the alarm level in the possum side look like over-cooperation, over-compliance. These are kids who are saying, yes, 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 right? And depending, especially if you have also kids that have more watchdog behaviors in the home, it can be easy not to notice that this behavior is actually pretty dangerous behavior, right? For our kids to be out in the world and using a coping mechanism of overcompliance, it's really leaving them at risk of pretty negative, dangerous, scary things happening to them. So this overcompliance can sometimes feel a robotic too. If it's like a people-pleasing side of, um, of this uh, pathway. And then again, there's the fear level of arousal. And on the possum side of the brain with a fear level of arousal, we're starting to see behaviors that look really, really, really shut down. We're probably seeing bodies that look pretty shut down, maybe hanging head, hair that's kind of hanging, shoulders that are collapsed. You know, the chest is kind of collapsed. These are the kids that would come into my office and just like, flop onto the couch or lay out on the ground. There's just a really, really, really hard time like mobilizing these kids or getting them into action. They're very, very slow. And then if we reach into the terror level of arousal, we start to see, we, we could see behaviors that would be considered like non-responsive, fainting. Sometimes what I see are kids who all of a sudden just randomly fall asleep right? When there's a, there's a level of stress in the environment, all of a sudden they're sleeping. If that could be part of this terror level of arousal. Um, so everything I've talked about so far, everything up until this moment, the owl brain, the watchdog brain, the possum brain, connection, protection, regulation, all of those things that I've talked about so far are all true about all brains, It's true about me, it's true about you, it's true about everyone. These are the things that we now understand about the relational brain. Now, trauma and toxic stress 
absolutely have an impact on the brain. Absolutely. And that's in particular, my area of expertise, that is what I have really studied and learned is what is the impact of trauma and toxic stress on the developing brain? Because if we can understand that, maybe we can get some better ideas about how to help these kids. So what we know for sure is that trauma and toxic stress impairs regulation. So remember, we had this graphic of this wave of up and down and up and down. It's this nice accelerator in the break that happens inside the window of tolerance. Well, trauma and toxic stress to the developing brain ends up with a nervous system that doesn't look like this nice up and down regulated, balanced energy and arousal. It looks more like this where it's like accelerator and brake and it's zero to 60. And sometimes it's both the accelerator and the brake slammed at the same time. And then they're released at the same time. And then it's unpredictable and it feels really scary, right? That the impact of trauma and toxic stress can impact regulation in this way. This, this leads to pretty unpredictable behavior as well as the the mountain out of a molehill phenomenon, like that confusion where you're like, okay, so I learned in this class that, you know, aggression is a terror response, but my kid is hitting and kicking and spitting and that nothing that I can tell is happening that would cause my child to be experiencing terror. Yeah, yes, that's completely true. From your subjective experience of felt safety, that level of arousal is confusing. But when regulation has been impacted by trauma and toxic stress, one of the things that happens is even the slightest little stressor can cause then a enormous arousal response. And it has to do with that. Actually, what happened when kids are experiencing trauma, toxic stress, when their brain is developing is they're flooded with stress. And so instead of having experiences that would allow them to like really build and nurture uh, their stress resilience part of their system, they, they, they don't get that opportunity. So they have very, very, very overreactive stress response sense systems. And we see that mountain out of a molehill thing, that huge reaction to what we would call a small stressor. What we have to remember is that felt safety is totally subjective. And if a child is reacting with terror level behaviors, we have to trust that their nervous system is experiencing that level of danger. They match. The behavior matches the level of lack of felt safety that they're experiencing, even if we're baffled by that, even if we're like, oh, I don't understand that at all. It's, it's something that we have to just trust that they match.
Hey, I'm jumping into the middle of this episode real quick to share with you what this club member has to say about their time in the club. They say, what an incredible community. It was my first Connection Co-Regulate session just now, and it was so incredible to share stories and experiences. Perhaps it's even more profound being across the world from each other. Oh, I totally agree that the fact that the club has members from all corners of the world really does make the experience more profound. I want the club to give you parenting tools, but more than that, I want the club to undo the sense of aloneness. I want the club to create community and togetherness. And by bringing to people all over the world, we're able to do just that. The club is open from now until Friday, April 28th, and we would love to have you. Trauma trauma and toxic stress then also impacts the brain in a way that leaves it primed to neuroceive danger. So the brain, all of our brains is asking safe or not safe, safe or not safe four times every second. But the brain that has experienced significant levels of trauma and toxic stress, it's almost like it gets to the point of like, well, everything always is dangerous. Like I'm always landing on danger, danger. So kind of what's the point of asking? Like, how about I just stay on danger, danger mode? So metaphorically, that's what's happening in the brain. And this is well validated with research that people with histories of trauma and toxic stress interpret neutral and even positive stimuli as threats. Their brain is primed to be experiencing things as threat. Trauma and toxic stress also impacts our connection system. And I think in this might even be like the most tragic part of this is that connection, remember, is a biological imperative we're born with it. We don't lose it. We need connection to survive. Yet, if a child's experiencing trauma and toxic stress inside an attachment relationship, they're also learning that connection isn't safe. So now they're left with these two pieces that create this paradox, this like unsolvable dilemma of I'm always looking for and driven towards connection, yet I also know that connection is dangerous. And because all humans, when they feel afraid, they start to look for connection in order to regulate. So I feel afraid, so I look for connection, but yet connection is what's made me feel afraid in the first place. So when I look for the connection, I continue to be afraid. And when I'm afraid, I look for connection. It's just this vicious cycle, right? With no way out. And it's this experience, this way that trauma and toxic stress can pair connection with danger, 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 that is actually underneath many of your kids, like most baffling behaviors. Like if I'm with a kid and we are just like scratching our head, like this behavior is so bizarre. It makes absolutely no sense at all. What I often think next is 
I wonder if this behavior is emerging from that place in their nervous system where connection is now being experienced as dangerous or threatening. Now, trauma and toxic stress aren't the only reasons that we can have sensitive or impaired regulation, connection, and felt safety. And some of the other reasons in which I'm not an expert in are different forms of neurodivergence, such as the autism spectrum, sensory processing disorder, the gifted brain, other brain-based differences. And because of those different neurotypes and the way that these different neurotypes are pulling in and processing information, not only from the environment, but also from their inner world, could be contributing to impairments in regulation and connection and felt safety. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert in those pieces, and so I don't speak to them. I just like to you know, make, a, make, make sure that we make a nod to the truth that Toxic stress and trauma aren't the only reasons that we can be experiencing impaired regulation, impaired connection, or impaired felt safety. So then, how do we change behavior? We increase regulation, we increase connection, and we increase felt safety. And we teach if we need to. Some kids, especially kids with trauma and toxic stress histories, actually really do need to be taught the appropriate behavior for a certain experience or environment. They just never had the opportunity to learn. So I like to leave that kind of open as an option that, yes, truly, some kids do need to learn what is an appropriate behavior in a certain situation. However, in almost all circumstances, kids aren't struggling to behave because they don't know how they're supposed to behave. Kids know, in general, how they're supposed to behave. That's not the problem. The problem is that they're not regulated enough. They're not feeling connected enough. They're not experiencing enough felt safety for the behaviors that they know are appropriate and that invite connection that can emerge. So this is why you know, consequences and punishments are almost never the pathway to increasing socially appropriate behavior. We certainly want to set boundaries. This paradigm shift includes very high boundaries, but setting high, you know, having high boundaries isn't synonymous with punishment and with consequences. And when we understand where the behavior is emerging from, that it's not emerging from the owl brain. Consequences and punishments teach the owl brain, okay? But if the behaviors are emerging from protection mode brain and they're emerging from the watchdog side of the brain or the possum side of the brain, rewards and consequences, punishments, behavior modification isn't the path back, right? The pathway back is regulation and connection and felt safety and trusting that regulated connected kids who feel safe have pro-social behaviors emerge. So we can ask ourselves these three questions when we're facing challenging behavior with our kids. Is this child regulated? Is this child feeling connected to me 
or to themselves. Is this child neuroceiving safety? And then we want to offer up experiences to the children that could increase regulation, increase connection, and increase felt safety, trusting that then pro-social behaviors will emerge. This paradigm shift, right? Really thinking about where behaviors are emerging from becomes then its own intervention, right? It's hinging on the science of the relational neurosciences and it's allowing us to change how we see the behaviors and then ultimately change how we see our kids. Because remember we talked about the beginning, changing how we see people changes people. So even if we do nothing else and there is so much else that we can do, so much we can do to help kids increase regulation, connection and felt safety, all while having really strong boundaries about behavior. But even if we did none of those things, just simply making this paradigm shift, just simply shifting over to changing how we see people is an intervention that in and of itself changes people. So I told you at the beginning, where are places you can go to get even more information? Like if you, uh, your curiosity has peaked and you're like, yes, I want to learn more about this whole regulation connection and felt safety thing, head over to my website. Remember I have a blog that is full of articles, full and full, full of articles, podcast. So between the two of them, you are going to find tons of articles and episodes specific to felt safety, specific to connection, specific to regulation. I have a podcast and I have blood articles about the arousal continuum. There's so much that you can explore. Okay. I also have the club, this virtual community for parents and professionals. It's not currently open for registration. We open up for new members every three months. So that I think will happen at the end of June. And then I have the digital course, Parenting After Trauma, Minding the Heart and Brain. And it's that course, Parenting After Trauma, Minding the Heart and Brain, it is built upon all of these concepts. So the whole course is built around the idea of the owl brain, the watchdog brain, and the possum brain, and learning how we can increase felt safety, increase regulation, increase connection, and learning how to do those things both when we're like faced in the moment with really challenging behaviors, but also when we're not like kind of outside the moment of really challenging behaviors, that's actually the best time to be really focusing on increasing regulation, increasing connection, increasing felt safety. And that's what the course parenting after trauma, minding the heart and brain goes through in a deep dive. So that course is nine modules. It's over six hours in videos and um, videos and audios. There's over 50 worksheets, um, that are really specifically designed 
to help you actually implement the material, right? Like how many times have you gone to conferences and workshops and read books and you're like, oh yeah, this information is great. I love it. I totally want to use it at home. And then you never do. And that's not because there's anything like wrong with you. You didn't actually really love the material or even that you didn't know how to. It's almost always because the material wasn't offered in a way that allowed the brain to really integrate it and then make it possible that you could like implement it into your stressful life. Like it's really easy to start talking about all of these wonderful ideas when we're in a, you know, very safe and controlled learning environment. But when, you know, you, you know, the rubber meets the road and we're faced with really challenging, stressful experiences in our everyday parenting lives, it's really hard to remember like, oh, wait, what was I supposed to do? What are the things that are supposed to help increase regulation and connection and health safety? And so that was part of my goal when I wrote Parenting After Trauma, Minding the Heart and Brain is how can I write this in a way, how can I deliver this and offer this in a way that isn't just more information, but really helps support integration of the material so that you can then implement it in your family. Well, what did you think? I hope you loved it. I know I referenced a lot of resources in the masterclass. You can find them all at robingobel.com. And if you head to the show notes for this episode, they should appear in your podcast player. You can find live links directly to all the different resources that I mentioned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I'm so grateful for you. Come find me on social media on both Facebook and Instagram and let's connect. I'll see you next time. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids. But also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what? If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory 
so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash being with, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you could get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you could just head to my website download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, ebooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now and I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.